News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. So Malik was on his way to his workplace this morning at the business he owned in this business park here in Newton. He arrived alone. It was approximately 9.30 when he was shot in his car in the parking lot. There was an effort to try and revive him. It was not successful, and he was pronounced dead here at the scene. That is Global News reporter Paul Johnson on the scene yesterday where the shooting of Raputaman Singh Malik has been sending shockwaves through the community for a number of reasons. Now, Malik was acquitted in the 1985 Air India bombing. And in a Facebook post, his son, Jaspreet Singh Malik, claimed his father was wrongly charged and that his father dedicated his life to peaceful and religious endeavors. Now, we'll talk about the history of the Air India case and how all of that ties into this with the reporter who's extensively covered the case. That's coming up after the 7 o'clock news. Right now, though, let's talk about the impact this is having in the community. Joining us now is Gapreet Sahota, newspaper editor, radio presenter, founding member of Wake Up Surrey. Good morning, Gapreet. Uh, good morning, Simi, and uh, good morning to all your listeners. What kind of reaction is this having among the people that you talk to in the community? What Did everybody know who Raputaman Singh Malik was? Uh, everybody's condemning, and uh, there are two types of people now. The people who are living uh, here from a long time, they know all about Raputaman Singh Malik. And the people who are immigrating after 1995, they don't know that much about uh, Raputaman Singh Malik. So when we are covering the stories, we have to tell them that who Raputaman Singh Malik was and uh, how he was involved in a couple of things. And uh, this is a mix. Yeah, mixed reaction from people given the history here? Uh, given the history here as well as uh, uh, like a, uh, to the condemnation and people close to him, people related to him, like uh, in the Khalsa school, in the Khalsa credit union, they are very sad. Other community members, when they read a lot of stuff about him, they are confused. They don't know what to say. And uh, but sadly, they are condemn, condemning, and they are saying that uh, uh, they are uh, believing that they are not safe in Surrey. It's a daytime at 9:30 a.m. and somebody's killing uh, people uh, on the busy road. And uh, how safe they are in Surrey—that's also a matter of concern for them. I can imagine. Yes. Now you mentioned a couple of the businesses there that Mr. Malik was involved in. Uh, how how prominent? How big is the Kalsa School and the Kalsa Credit Union? Kalsa Credit Union is a huge, and uh, uh, it's, it's growing very fast. And if you talk about Kalsa School, it's the largest private school in BC. Uh, they have uh, around six and more than six branches with more than I think fifteen hundred students right now, and it's a huge. And uh, uh, most of the community members they try to send their kids to these schools to get early education for Punjabi and for religion, and they are huge. They're growing very fast. Yeah, I remember that because I remember when it started. And so he, he was one of the founding people behind that, right? Yeah, he came here in 1972. And uh, then he started this projects with other people in, involved in the community. He was not alone. Uh, they started in 1986 with the first branch of Carlsberg Union and Carlsberg School. And then uh, after that, they go to uh, like six and seven branches of a bank and six, seven branches of school. Now, Gapreet, there's so much talk about the Air India situation and what was happening back in the 1980s with all the controversy and the, the Sikh separatist movement. Have people have people forgotten a lot about that, or was that feeling still there, do you think, out in the community? 
feeling is always there. People are upset in every June uh, because first week of June, people of the Sikh community think about the, uh, the army attack on Golden Temple. And in June 23rd, for the Air India people, still people cry because there was no justice for the families uh, of the victim families. Nobody knows yet, uh, and there's no disclosure uh, why happened, how happened. So Mr. Malik has lots of secrets, and all the secrets are gone with him. So do you feel like for many people then that there is still these these questions now? And also, it almost raises more questions now, doesn't it? Because, the, as you mentioned, lots of people who didn't know about him are now wondering, what the heck is going on here? The thing is, if you go in the past, the people who knew about Air India, they were killed uh, mysteriously, like a um, editor of a UK newspaper, a Punjabi newspaper, Des Pradesh, the same thing very well, killed in 1988. And in 1998, Tara Singh here, editor of Indian Times, he was sent later to India, and he was killed. We don't know who killed them. So I think same will happen with Mr. Malik, like the style of killing. Uh, we won't know uh, in the future that who killed him. You think this will just stay another mystery? Like a, a Tara Singh Hayer one also is a very prominent one. You're right, Never, we've never solved that one. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that this is a high-profile murder, and the way they killed him, we won't uh, know in the future that who killed him, and it will be again a big mystery. Because Mr. Malik knows lots of things about Air India and other stuff. All is gone now. Gurpreet, thank you for your time on that this morning. Thank you. Bye-bye. This is Mornings with Simi. There is no question that Raputaman Singh Malik played a very significant role in the community and also now being talked about as a role in what went on surrounding all the discussion and everything with the Air India bombing back in 1985. Yes, he was put on trial for that. Yes, he was acquitted, but the questions never really went away. Now, former Premier Ujjal Dosanjh was on the Jazz Johal show yesterday, and he talked about Raputaman Singh Malik the way he knew him back in the 1970s too, as Malik became more focused on religion, and they were part of the community that helped set up a society to found the Khalsa Religious School. And the former premier also talked about what he felt changed Malik. It was followed by a massacre of the Sikhs across India. Uh, that made the situation much worse and, you know, killed many people and obviously made many other people very angry at the government uh, and at the country. And, and I think Mr. Um, Mr. Malik got swept up in that and uh, and uh, was uh, had become a fundamentalist, had become a supporter of the extremists. That's former Premier Ujjal Dosanjh on the Jazz Johal show yesterday. So what is the history behind this? There are a lot of people who probably are wondering why is this story such a big deal? So we thought, let's explain some of that to you. Joining us now is Salim Jiwa, multiple award-winning Vancouver journalist, author of The Death of Air India Flight 182 and Margin of Terror. Thanks for joining us this morning. Good morning, Siri. Now, maybe you could help us walk people through this. Why is this story so significant? What What is the historical aspect here? Well, the historical aspect is that uh, Malik played a significant uh, financial role um, in uh, in uh, uh, the militancy that erupted after the uh, Golden Temple assault in 1984. Uh, he promoted some of the key figures who we came later came to know as uh, the Air India bombers. He he financed many 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 organizations and groups, 
And uh, mostly it was about his money. Uh, I met him several times, numerous times in fact, um, to fill his mind out, to, to get a gauge on what he was thinking and what he was, uh, what he expected to happen in the city. Or and Canada became a hub of um, militancy because of the Golden Temple attack, and that's basically Malik's uh, conversion from a businessman uh, who made money and uh, uh, turned around into uh, a man who became an engine, in a sense, of militancy. Is it hard for people today to to remember that because when it was you know decades ago, but it was a different time period back then, wasn't it? There was there was a lot of kind of controversy, a lot of this discussion in the community. Yes, uh, it, it was a very emotional time for the Sikh community, of course, because of the Golden Temple invasion uh, called on by uh, Mrs. Gandhi. Uh, she asked troops to invade the temple. Tanks were used. Uh, indiscriminate shootings happened inside the temple. Uh, the building was severely damaged. And let's face it, the Golden Temple is like the Vatican uh, in many senses to the Sikh communities, yes. part of the faith. And they were injured. And I saw adult people, men, women, uh, crying on the streets of Vancouver or saw a demo of 25,000 people uh, crying. Uh, they were walking down the streets towards the Indian consulate. So it was a period of time when emotions were running very, very high. Mm-hmm. Why has the investigation, the decades of it, after the Air India bombing, why, Salim, has investigation been so difficult and it's been so hard for the families to find justice here? Well, I think I think in any terrorist event, uh, it is very difficult to find uh, every participant in a, in a cell structure. You can have one man doing making a bomb, and he may not even know what is going to be used for. You may have someone else uh, who is going to deliver bags to the airport. You can have somebody else who doesn't even know that he's going to deliver a bomb to the airport. You can have somebody else who is buying tickets for you. It is a disjointed operation when it is done in a structure, in this kind of a structure. And and let's face it, the RCMP, who I met multiple times, uh, uh, were, were in a way lost within the culture. Uh, these were white cops. Who, who it took a long time to basically learn about the about the culture, uh, about terrorism. Terrorism was pretty new to Canada, particularly to the West Coast. Uh, we had terrorist events in the East, um, but we didn't have anything here. And and this whole thing came at, at them as a completely new thing. So were you surprised when you heard the news yesterday? It does feel like so much time has gone by. Maybe that was all behind us now. Well, you know, Simi, it's always a surprise when a human being is shot, regardless of what your thoughts are or whatever. I'm sure that some people in the community and some people in the context of the families of the Air India victims, who will say, well, this is karma. But I don't think this had anything to do with the Air India bombing. 
this is uh, uh, a new chapter in Malik's life where he has basically turned his back uh, to to the people that he basically initially supported. Um, he, he wrote to the Prime Minister of India recently, the Prime Minister Modi, who is a Hindu nationalist, and uh, thanked him for redressing some of the concerns of the victims of the uh, Indira Gandhi assassination riots, uh, compensation being paid to Sikhs, um, people being removed from blacklists that made them made it impossible for him and others to travel. And there is an issue at the temple in Surrey where there's an election going over, coming up. Right. Where Malik would have liked to see uh, a different slate. Well, I mean, and this is all going to be interesting stuff that's going to be talked about in the next little while. Uh, Salim, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you, Simi. That is Salim Jiwa, multiple award-winning Vancouver journalist and author of The Death of Air India Flight 182 and Margin of Terror, offering his thoughts, uh, his opinions on what he sees happening in the Raputabin Singh Malik case and what has been going on. Now, obviously, there's a lot of speculation out there. There's a lot of that going on right now. We wait for a, an official police update on the case, though. That is happening this morning at 10 o'clock, so there will be more to come on. This is Mornings with Simi. Researchers at Simon Fraser University say they have made a breakthrough in quantum technology and it will help quantum computing's capabilities go beyond those supercomputers that we have today. It all sounds so promising, right? So what is it? How does it work? We're going to find out right now. Stephanie Simmons joins us now, an associate professor of physics at Simon Fraser University, the Canada Research Chair. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for joining us. Hey, well, thank you very much for your interest. This sounds so interesting. Can you explain it to us in a way that we will all understand it? Right, yeah. So um, information, you know, we think of the zeros and ones that we use in our phones and our computers. Those We think of these things as abstract, but they're actually physical. They represented a physical form and like a transistor in your, in your uh, computers. And so that means that it can be manipulated according to physical laws, like, you know, Newtonian classical physics. Like when you flick a light switch, right? Like that's what I'm thinking about for classical physics. It was figured out maybe about 40 years ago that if you look at all of the possible laws of physics that allow for you to manipulate information, quantum physics offers stuff that you just can't get anywhere else. So for example, you can teleport information um, using quantum physics. You can be in zero and one at the same time. It's some pretty mind blowing stuff. But what it means is that you can unlock things, uh, computational tasks that you just can't do any other way through any other laws of physics. And so what we're trying to do is build a system that can use all that for our advantage. Okay, and so this this breakthrough then that happened at SFU, does it put us on the road to building that system? Yeah, so basically there's a, a large, um, old international race to try and make this happen. And if anything, I would say it's actually really hard to build these systems. Like it's not easy to control all of those uh, quantum bits or qubits. They're very fickle things. Um, and so what we've been able to do at Simon Fraser, which we're super excited about, is put a new um, entrant into that race, one that looks like it might be a lot easier to make at scale. Uh, what's different about it is it's put into the same silicon that we use in today's 
uh, uh, computer chips, right? We use silicon right. to do all of today's computer chips. And so it uses that same manufacturing capability. And what's most important is that these qubits, these quantum bits talk to each other using telecom photons. So telecom fiber is like the fiber that's all through the metropolitan networks and through all the data centers and the rest. So you could link up a lot of these things. And so we're very excited. It's a new, uh, it's a new uh, entrant to the race and it might go really fast because of those commercial um, sides to it. Right. Okay. So then at SFU, what they did was they're learning to make um, even better chips, right? The, the old, the chips that we used to make with the old technology, we can now improve them because of this. Yeah, so we can basically add quantum ingredients to regular classical processors. And so you can leverage all of that classical um, microelectronics that already exists, right? It's already there. It's already an industry. You don't need to make a whole new quantum one. So we're going to be kind of leapfrogging a little bit by virtue of finding these good ingredients. We can use all of that infrastructure, which already exists. That's why we're so excited. Okay, now I can see why you're so excited. That makes perfect sense to me, the way you've just described it there. So then, Stephanie, what are the next steps here? So this has happened. Great discovery. It's published in Nature, which is amazing. So how do we, how quickly will we see this advance now? Yeah, um, there is (laughs) still quite a lot to be done. I'm not going (laughs) to, I don't want to try and get everyone's hopes up. But the whole point is that I would like for this to be, you know, on the matter of scale of years rather than decades. Um, Every time, if we go back and take a look Every time we've commercialized a branch of physics, it's taken decades to play out, but it's changed everything we do. The reason we can have this conversation today is because of semiconductor physics, right? And we can now talk over all the infrastructure, the optical infrastructure. Um, The reason we can plug into the wall is because we've commercialized electromagnetism 200 years ago, right? So these things can take a long time to really see their full potential. And what we're really hoping to do is take that a lot shorter by piggybacking upon um, the the quant or the the physics revolutions that have come before us. So when each of those revolutions happened, were we aware that they were revolutions? Like, did we know at that time that was there a conversation like this one that happened that said, "Oh, this is going to be the next big thing"? Um, yes and no. Uh, so if you go and take a look at what people thought you could do with semiconductors, right? Semiconductor physics is again the reason we have silicon and all the magic computational power we do. They thought that the application of the transistor was going to be hearing aids, right? They didn't really see. Well, that's kind of small Facebook scale, isn't it? Or that's kind of- well, that's, I, I, think, I mean, if you take a look, uh, we actually aren't that creative as humans. We need to build on each other over decades, right? So they weren't, you know, when they were thinking of semiconductor physics and transistors, they were using vacuum tubes before, right? So they were already doing some like code breaking, even using vacuum tubes, but they had no idea how far it would go. And they had no idea about like Facebook right? They, they couldn't see that far ahead. So um, they did know that it was a big deal. Nuclear was another one, right? When we commercialized nuclear physics, um, optical physics, you know, all of these things people have, there's always people that were making big grand forecasts at the time, but you never can, people tend to overestimate the short term and underestimate the long term, right? Like these things can have major long term trends that change everything that we do. That's such a good way of putting it because I always wonder like, what comes first? Do we imagine it and then we create it or does it happen kind of organically? A lot of times we'll see something pop up in a movie and then 30 years later you're like, oh, there it is. Now we can do that. Well, teleportation is a great example. We actually use the word teleportation because it's the best word out there to describe what actually happens with the quantum information. So you can teleport quantum information. You can teleport it over a couple hundred kilometers, for example, already, right? Then there's there's technologies that people are working on to teleport around the world. It's 
awesome. Not not physical stuff, right? Like not not atoms, right. but information. It can teleport, and so you can already imagine different applications for the way we communicate, right? There's no more eavesdropping on something like that. So it's it's uh, it's interesting when we people did imagine that, and then we're like, okay, well, hey, does quantum mechanics allow for this? And then they figured out, yeah, oh, well, actually, it does. So it it is a cyclic thing to your point, right? Like people are imaginative a little bit, and then we kind of um, do a bit of steps here and there, back and forth, until we can get something really remarkable. Well, Stephanie, then you know very well that when people hear the word quantum, all they think of is time travel. Well, sure, but um, two hundred years ago, people used to fill auditoriums. Um, to see what a magnet was, right? Like magnets were so equally true. magical, right? E- they were equally magical. And now we have electromagnetism. We can plug and get electricity in our walls and it's boring. And that's the way it should be, right? That's why we've, we've unlocked that power and now it's boring. So eventually quantum will be seen as boring. But right now I agree with you in the media. Sometimes it can be synonymous with the word magic. It's and that's really okay. True. It's like, it's, it's <laughs> coming. It's coming, right? We'll get it there. We'll get it there. Well, thank now you. that's where we're at. Uh, thank you so much for explaining it to us this morning. That was fascinating. Yeah, I really appreciate your interest. Thank you so much. That was great. Stephanie Simmons, an associate professor of physics at Simon Fraser University. Take her class because she explains things very, very well. And the Canada Research Chair as well, talking about this big breakthrough that researchers up at SFU have had. They made a breakthrough in quantum technology, and they're saying this will open the door to the future of computing. And Stephanie did a great job of explaining that to us. This is Mornings with Simi. Yes, keep listening for your chance to win some Eagles tickets. It's not right at this moment. It is coming soon. It's just not right at this moment, though, because right now we are going to be talking about the housing market in our province. Interest rates definitely right across the country saw a hefty bump on Wednesday. And so now a lot of people are warning of a bumpy road ahead when it comes to real estate. Let's talk more about that. James Laird joins us now, the co-CEO of ratehub.ca and president of the CanWise Mortgage Lender. James, thanks for being here. Good morning. What kind of impact have you seen? Like what kind of reaction has there been since that interest rate hike on Wednesday? Yeah, so it definitely caught uh, some of the market by surprise. Most people were expecting the Bank of Canada increase by 0.75. So a big rate increase was expected, but uh, most were a little surprised that they went all the way up to 1%. So anyone who currently has a fixed rate mortgage is not affected because, of course, their rate is set until their next renewal. But anyone who has a variable rate mortgage or a home equity line of credit uh, they will see their their rate increase by the full 1%, and then their payments will go up uh, in unison as well. So it is variable rate holders and home equity line of credit uh, holders who are impacted by this change right away. And what about people who obviously use, say, ratehub.ca to look for rates? Like, Are you seeing a change at all in people who are searching things out to try to get into the market? Uh, we certainly see a lot of activity on our site uh, in and around these rate changes. You know, when rates are moving a lot, people want to do more research and make sure that they're finding the lender or bank or credit union uh, who's offering the lowest rate. So, yeah, people certainly do more research. Um, you know, when rates are declining, we see people are more likely to just renew with their existing lender because they get that renewal notice and it's the same rate or lower and what they had uh, before. So they often just renew with their existing lender. But yeah, as rates rise right now, it is important to to do your research, shop around and make sure uh, you're getting the best deal. Because we we do have a a big variety, especially in in Vancouver and British Columbia with the 
with the strong credit unions and, and banks and other mortgage lending companies, there's a lot of options out there, and um, and some have a lot better rates than others. Yeah, how quick have the institutions been to hike those rates, or does it remain quite competitive if you're trying to shop for some kind of break? Uh, well, with again, with variable rates and when rates rise, uh, all institutions, as, as you might be able to guess, uh, they're very quick to pass along uh, higher rates. Uh, when rates drop, sometimes they're a little bit slower, but... Uh, they are quick, so uh, really every mortgage lender has announced that their prime has gone up by the full 1%. Now, one thing that's interesting about the current environment is fixed rates really haven't changed as a result of this Bank of Canada announcement, and that's because uh, the bank in early June, they were pretty forceful in telling Canada that they planned on raising rates aggressively, so when they did the fixed rates actually didn't change much because this hike was essentially already priced into fixed rate mortgages across the country. Right. But do you think the next little while are people going to start feeling the impact of this? Yeah, certainly. Again, the the variable rate holders. And then we're seeing the impact on the real estate market as well. You know, with, with such volatility, we're seeing a lot of people who are you know, maybe planning on buying a home in May or June or this summer, they're saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait to see what the rate environment is like. Uh, they're expecting, you know, further downward pressure on home prices. So they're hoping to get maybe a better deal on that house uh, in a couple of months than, than they are now. So really what we're expecting is that the bank needs to get to where they want to eventually get the rate to to fight inflation. And so we're thinking that there's probably another half percentage point increase coming this year. And then once that rate stabilizes, even though it's going to be at significantly higher rates than we're, we're used to, then people can actually say, okay, a five-year fixed rate is this and a variable rate is this. Now I can decide if, if it's the right time for me to purchase the home or not. Right. So you're saying what you're saying is in the volatility right now, perhaps is turning some people off. People are looking for more stability. Correct. And, and even if that stability comes at like I think we all know that the baseline rate environment is going to be significantly higher than what it's been during the pandemic. But at least when we get there, we can we can budget, we can see how home prices react, and then each household can make a decision, or each first-time home buyer can make a decision: Is now the right time, or am I going to save some more money, or what is my plan now that I just at least understand what the mortgage rate environment is going to be. Did it surprise you, James, the kind of topsy-turvy changes that we have seen in the rates in the last six months? No, not really. Um, you know, the we've been in a two, two and a half years of uh, record low rates. And that was logical uh, because of the pandemic. Like, remember, at the beginning of the pandemic, the Bank of Canada dropped rates uh, by 1.5% very quickly to make sure that we, you know, the recession, the effects of the pandemic were not too bad. And it's only it's only actually this last announcement where uh, we've gone beyond those rate drops. So it's only it's only finally with this last announcement that rates are actually higher than they were February 2020, right before the beginning of the pandemic. So it's it's really been a long time coming and probably they did it a little bit late to undo the 
stimulus-type rate environment that we've had for two and a half years. And that is why uh, inflation is, is kind of out of control is because we probably left the rate too low for too long. Well, I guess we're still going to be feeling the impacts then. James, thank you for that. Thanks for having me. That's James Laird, the co-CEO of RateHub.ca and the president of CanWise, the mortgage lender, talking about the impact that this week's big rate hike has had on certainly their customers, what they're hearing in the market too. And really the kind of bumpy road that could be ahead for people who were at this moment thinking of getting into the market perhaps this year. We'll see how that evens out too. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com.